Welcome to How Have You Not Seen That? My name is Crossland. I'm Wilson. And I'm Charles. Uh, this is a podcast about telling the truth. We talk about films that we've either lied about sealing or even like intonated that we've seen it, but now I've like not actually come out to say it. But if you've ever been in a situation where someone has asked you, have you seen that film and you demurred or said that you had, even though you hadn't, this is the chance to admit that you've not seen it and to actually watch it. Yes. Last week, Wilson, you admitted that you hadn't seen the 1955 film Night of the Hunter. That's true. I hadn't until now. Until now. (laughs) uh, It stars uh, Robert Mitchum and some children. Yes. (laughs) And Lillian Gish. Yeah. Do you want to tell us about this film? Yes, I do. So like you said, uh, Night of the Hunter came out in 1955. It's the only movie ever directed by Charles Lawton. Uh, And this one stars Robert Meacham as a preacher who is also a murderer. Um, He travels from town to town preying on widows, evidently, is what he implies or explicitly states in his opening monologue. He is in jail for a while where he hears that a man has hidden $10,000 in his house or town somewhere, um, and that this man is scheduled to die, which he eventually does. His cellmate. His cellmate, yeah. Armed with this knowledge, the Robert Meacham character seduces the widow and terrorizes the children because they, the children are the only ones who know where this money is hidden. The uh, children eventually discover that the widow has been killed or is at least missing, and they flee down the river with a bunch of animals following them or something. They eventually meet up with the Lillian Gish character, Cooper, Rachel Cooper, who protects them and is finally an adult that has some sense and responsibility. (laughs) And the Robert Beecham preacher tracks them down and is eventually apprehended by the police. It was not well received when it originally came out and is one that was later revived um, by the, the critical community and identified with the kind of strange, almost expressionistic movie that it is and has since gone on to be regarded as a classic. Uh, this is a movie that I really I completely missed the boat on. I across when I remember you told me about this one a while ago, and I was, literally wasn't even aware of it. That was a year or so ago, something, least, yeah. something like that. So I've wanted to watch it since then, but this felt like a good opportunity. And I'm glad I did, because I thought it was really good. I liked it a lot. Uh, what do you think of this one, Charles? I went in afraid, because I usually have a hard time with these really old black and white <laughs> movies, mm-hmm. but I actually enjoyed it quite a bit. The, I really got sucked into like the tension whenever um, the preacher was on screen and trying to get the info and yeah. trying to see if these like kids would randomly give it up because I don't trust kids to <laughs> keep a secret like that, right? And there's a lot of good tension in these scenes. It's very well done. Yeah, and, and especially from those kids. Like the, the, the boy, whose name I don't recall, but that actor just nails it. Like, yeah, that's absolutely. That's a really strong performance from yeah. a very young actor because he's pretty much looked like the age of the character. And he carries a lot of this movie. Like he is our point of view character for a lot of the, the, the film, and he does. Yeah, he does good work here. Crossman, you had seen this one before, though, correct? Yeah, about a year ago for the first time, and I wasn't really aware of it before I saw it. I heard, okay. I heard someone talking about it on somewhere, like on podcast or yeah. something. And I was like, "Well, I'll check it out." Mm-hmm. I, I did some little reading on it to like figure, try and figure out what it was, and then just kind of watched it on a whim and was blown away by the the visuals of the film and, and how it's like scary yeah. it is it's stunning it's just like yeah. it, like every frame it's just is just flooring it's very very well done but it's way more mature than it and like modern than it actually is the use yeah. of yeah. shadow and light in this mm-hmm. film is uh, almost unparalleled yeah. like it's Maybe one of one of the best films that uses light, like of all time. Yeah, I mean, it, yeah, it's true. an easy comparison, but it definitely recalls German Expressionists. It looks like an early Fritz Lang movie. Mm-hmm. Like, it, it, like even the sets themselves look not like quite ramshackle, but very simple. Like mm-hmm. it's just like here's a house with a blank wall, and like here's another building on this street, and like the it looks not cheaply made, but inexpensively made. But so much of what's riveting about this movie is the use of light and shadow. And, and like how that is framed in these broad, simple spaces. Um, and that, that is really striking and feels very forward thinking. And how um, it uses like the sound of the space a lot too, mm-hmm. where you hear our, the Robert Mitchum's character, the main bad guy, just, you can hear him singing from a distance and he has like these just signs that he's around and yeah, it's, it's haunting you. Yeah, really haunting. Or yeah. Hunting you. Like, that's right. It's right there on the title. Yeah, like he's the one hunting them down, and he has this like resonant baritone that just yeah. encompasses the movie. He has such a, a bellow and such a powerful voice yeah. that, that it just 
it, it fills in the space that this movie creates really well, such that he does feel like he's everywhere, like that he is constantly around. What really stood out to me was, and this was definitely a deliberate choice, that they made his clothing much darker than everybody else's clothing, and it always shows up. So he has this very like dark black presence on screen with this like very dark suit, right? And he's like sucking all the light out from the rest of the scene. Yeah, yeah, and he just it, takes over any space he's in. Yeah, well, and he's so often the figure. The shadowed figure that that blocks the light. Like you have, I remember very clearly the shot where like the the sun is in the bedroom and there is a light coming from the window. It's just like a big square of light on the wall, blank wall next to him. And then like all of a sudden, there's Robert Meacham's shadow with his weird hat on. And yeah, like it's just yeah, it's so uh, iconic. Yeah, yeah, yeah. and it, it's so striking and and really gives this movie a, a, a tone and a look that is kind of unforgettable. Yeah, the scene that stood out to me, and it felt way ahead of its time, was when they show the mother's dead body yes. in the car underwater. Definitely. Something about that scene just felt very modern to me. The way it was shot. This, I think maybe it's the setting because like, it seemed like it'd be hard to get a scene that's all underwater shot like that. Um, and obviously just very haunting to see her floating there dead. It seems like it seems very, I don't know, gory or explicit for the time. I, I agree. And I have no idea how they shot that. Yeah. <laughs> Cameras in the 50s are enormous and underwater photography the, is... There's no way they were waterproof, right? Still very challenging. They've done... Underwater photography had existed for a while, but it was still like... I don't know. That's that's like a very technically challenging shot, even, yeah. even today. And, yeah. So yeah. like, I don't know. Like, did they submerge it in a tank and then like film it from outside the tank or something? That's Maybe. reasonable. I have no suggestion. idea. Pure yeah. skeptical. But it'd be a huge like, tank. Yeah. And would need like moving water in it. Yeah, because it, yeah. it, it definitely. Well, it didn't look like a model. It looked like an actual vehicle, right? Or at least yeah. the size of a vehicle. So it. Right? It, was, like, it was probably like a pool that they shot yeah. it in, but like that's, you know. Who knows? I don't know. I don't know either. And like, this is have to look it up. This is a first-time director and an only-time director. Like this is <laughs> this is how he kicked off his and ended his career is is putting together shots like that. And just based on my research of this movie, in preparation for this episode, like that is definitely the shot that stands out. That's the one that people reference the most often as and the right to. The one that struck me this time around was when the scene where he murders the mom mm-hmm. is like amazing. Yeah. Uh, the the way that it's it's shot with this room that's like cut in half and it's all shadow outside the room and then inside the room he's like you can just see it like happening in slow motion where he's like kind of praying and he's being pulled to like murder this woman because he's like so out of control of his his uh, uh being yeah and it just like just moves in this way that's like really Stunning. Yeah. Well, and, you have the sense of, and like, she's like accepting it, like yeah, because yeah. she's like totally taken in, right? Like she's uh, this abused figure. Yeah. And uh, and you have like it's framed such that you feel this darkness that's just both encompassing them and inescapable, right? Like that they it's so closed in around her specifically that she she knows she can't get out of it. The audience knows she can't get out of it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. There's like a martyrdom to it. Though. Yeah. So, such that there, there's no surprise to it. It's just dread. <laughs> so like you know what's going to happen, and all there is to do is just wait for when it's happening. Yeah, exactly. And I think the space was also. I think it's like an attic style situation where it's like a triangular ceiling. Yes, so mm-hmm. you feel really trapped and closed in. Yes. Yeah, and, and yeah, that's that's very well done, and because that, that's how the, the house is shaped as well, right? Yeah. Like you have this pitched roof uh, and things like that. Uh, but, but returning to that underwater shot, uh, the, I watched this on um, Filmstruck, where it was streaming because it's a good service <laughs> mm-hmm. um, and they have all the criterion extras um, that come along with it if you were to go buy the you know $40 criterion disc um, and one of them was a short interview with Guillermo del Toro mm-hmm. who apparently loves this movie <laughs> unsurprisingly that, yeah totally unsurprising yeah and that's the shot he referenced it, it, he, he said like yeah as soon as as soon as that came on screen I knew this was something special I knew mm-hmm. that that's the kind of aesthetic that I wanted like in my films and I, just every like the flowing seaweed Combining with the hair, the, the fact that you can see her slit throat underwater there, like the the serene, like unearthly serene look on her face, like it to, to see the 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 parallel between this movie and Del Toro's work, I think absolutely, yeah, really, yeah, draws I'm a sure good line. he like directly references that in the uh, haunted house movie that he did a couple of years Crimson ago, Peak. Crimson Peak, yeah, 
I'm pretty yeah. sure there's like a direct reference to this movie in that. Well, and um, or you look at Shape of Water, which just you know obviously yeah. has a lot of underwater shots in it. Yeah, but but there's a ghost with uh, in that movie. Okay, and, but in it. And like, like the, the way that it looks, type of and, look. okay. yeah, and the the ghosts in the movie have like their injuries from life. Okay, and uh, so so yeah, here we are exactly. Yeah, um, so yeah, just it, it's cool to see a movie like this that like pretty much flopped and bombed when it came out both critically and financially. Like, it's, see it influence filmmakers later on that are in fact very successful and have made a lot of movies and have full careers. Um, so that that is cool, I think. That. Part of the reason where I could see this movie kind of flop would be like some of the things that it does. It kind of like beats them over the head like a little too much. Like the oh yeah, it's not subtle. The <laughs> yeah. the, the music is a little absurd in the movie. Where like you, that's a yeah. You definitely. see Mitchum's character, and the music's like bum bum bum. Oh, here's the guy. Yeah. He's the other one that gets me is you have this shot of like an owl eating a rabbit or swooping down to snatch a yeah. rabbit. And Lillian Gish literally looks at the camera and says, this world's really unsafe for little things. I'm yeah. Like, okay. Yeah, great. yeah. Thank you. <laughs> we, we got it. When she's so that's what that talking means. to yeah. the audience, it's very un- unnecessary. It's a, she does it twice at the beginning and at the end. It bookends yes. the film. Yes. And I was like, like I would... Not a choice. If I were a filmmaker, not a choice I'd make. But yeah. Uh, right. Yeah. That's, that's a little on the nose. Um, yeah. But if, I'm, if I were to speculate as to why this movie probably didn't land very well when it came out. I, I mean, this is a period piece, right? Like, it goes back to the Depression era. I think we're looking at a group, an, uh, an audience that just got done with the Depression, just got done with World War II. Mm-hmm. Like, they're not ready to go back to that. They're not ready to be super depressed. Like, you look at the other films that are coming out of that time, it's a lot of, like, bright musicals, and it's a lot of, like, big, happy comedies and things like that. Like, folks probably aren't that excited to see, like, a grim, terrifying movie about a murderous preacher yeah. <laughs> roaming the southern well, you know, countryside. It's it's an it, um, it's like an anti-western. It, it, yeah, um, it's mm-hmm. very it's extremely claustrophobic. So, mm-hmm. and western is like most popular genre in 1955, probably. Sure. Yeah, definitely. It's extremely claustrophobic. It's about America, but it, it shows a very dark version mm-hmm. of it. The structure is that of a western, where you just have like a wander, like a rambling man come into mm-hmm. town, and instead of like saving the town, he like destroys he, it. He destroys it. Yeah, yeah. Um, and you know, it it shows you know kind of the like implosion of the you know the internal country. Right. It will, you even have him in like a mock cowboy hat, right? Mm-hmm. Like that that mm-hmm. image that he strikes. In the window there, he looks like a cowboy, except that he, again, he's not here to save, yeah. save anybody. He's here to, to it, steal for himself. It shows the version of America where things are not going well. Right. Like, in where where are you going to go? You just, like, get on the river and, like, hope to find salvation, mm-hmm. uh, you know. Yeah. And, 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 and your only options are to these very strict, you know, interpretations of religion, uh, one one by Mitchum's character and one by the the woman who saves them. So yeah. it's a very dark film for many reasons. Yeah. Well, and yeah. and then it it deals so specifically and so honestly with trauma, right? Like it's this is a movie that really takes kind of a surprising turn at the end, where the the son character that we've been following this time whole time pretty clearly has PTSD. Right, like he has a flashback where he returns to his father's arrest and eventual murder by the state mm-hmm. when he sees Robert Meacham's character in a similar position. Right, so it's like this weird old combination of like the post traumatic stress disorder as well as like some Stockholm syndrome or something like that because he starts sympathizing with his quasi captor, you know, pursuer. And it doesn't like it kind of resolves that, but it doesn't like show him getting over it. It shows him like. A little bit okay later on when they have Christmas time at Lily Moved Inches. on a bit. Right. But like it's still just a very frank depiction of the ripple effect of trauma. Right. Mm-hmm. And to see that in a, in a, a film that came out in 1955 is, is surprising. Like mm-hmm. I was surprised just watching it the other day. The other thing that would probably be pretty alienating to a 55 audience is it's a very like leans pretty heavily on the like the fantastic in this film where sure. when the children escape the film suddenly becomes like an Alice in Wonderland uh, scenario where you 
you know, you see realistic animals with the way that they play with depth, the animals become enormous and the shell uh, becomes and, tiny. Yeah, and threatening. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, like that that shot of the frog. The frog really yeah. comes to mind in, in the way that they go through the spider web, which is like a bit on the nose, but it is also like an amazing mm-hmm. shot. Like yeah. as they're floating down the river. Yeah, and you have like these bird's eye shots of them like sleeping in their um, their boat as it as it floats down. Like it be yeah, it, it it does feel like they're entering this fantasy land, right? And, and as they escape, right? Then that and it, so as to suggest that the escape from the horrors of this figure is to is an escape into fantasy, right? Like that mm-hmm. you can't really escape this. Right, like you have to enter a fantasy world in order to do it, and you know that's troubling. <laughs> like that's not a happy thought. Yeah, and unlike you know in a, in a western where the you know the natural world is something to be conquered, uh, conquered yeah. you know this even the smallest of things is like very frightening here. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, and it dominates you, right? Well, you like, could, yeah. Yeah. You could also read it as like the kids leaving the normalcy of home now that their parents are dead and there's no place for them there anymore, mm-hmm. right? Um, and since they're still <laughs> children, like everything out in, in the unknown wilderness seems terrifying to you, right? So everything starts to look huge and threatening. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And I think that that is the effect here. Is yeah, that, is that it is ter- terrifying and threatening. Um, what do we think of the, the Shelley Winter character? That's the the widow that is in you know half the movie until she's murdered. Mm-hmm. <laughs> she, I mean, speaking of trauma like she's clearly an abused woman and if not physically well eventually physically clearly but emotionally um how did, how did she work for us i just felt bad for her the whole time it yeah. seemed like she was just getting kind of pushed around into things right like um the beginning is basically like the old woman telling her like that she has to have a man mm-hmm. right and yeah. then the old woman like pushes her into this marriage with this crazy preacher dude that you met earlier that day yeah right. and i'm like is this how things worked in the 50s that's kind of scary right but yeah. she she has no agency in this just gets kind of pushed into it by essentially social expectations and then gets murdered for it like that sucks right well it, but before that she very clearly buys in right like because you have these scenes of her like with the torches in the revival tent or whatever where she's like preaching right like she is, i thought that was cool yeah it is I like, I, that's a, a Good it's scene. A good, yeah, it's a great scene. <laughs> that, was a, that was a very um, Paul Thomas Anderson-y scene. That, uh, yeah, I was reminded of There Will Be Blood as well. Um, and and I remember in my notes, I wrote at that time, like, is this an anti-religion movie? Because, you know, There Will Be Blood very clearly is, and this recalls that. Uh, but I don't think that's where it's going. I don't think, I don't think so either. Because yeah. it, it, it definitely it seems to play to, like, different interpretations of religion. Mm-hmm. But, yeah, it... I think it's more attacking like the charlatan than it is the religion as like a concept at, I, at large. I agree, and it makes that clear later on when Lillian Gish shows up, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. she's you know this devout figure, but also their savior. Um, and I think that you and, know, puts and, a point on it. Um, women and women's sexuality are treated very extremely poorly in this <laughs> film, and yes. are shown to be the uh, um, causes of, of a lot of the issues of, that the characters face. You're right, because well, you have like Rosie. Well, the um, which one's Rosie? The like kind of teen girl at the yeah. end. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So yeah, she's treated very poorly, uh, and sort of like causes the, uh, the clim- climactic events of the film just out of kind of looking for uh, uh, a, bo- a boyfriend in town. <laughs> right. Yeah, although I was a little curious how the preacher like knew who Rosie was, or how he heard that there were two new kids in their house or something like that. I mean, it seems like he already knew what was going on. Yeah, and I feel like there was something that explained that that's not coming to me right now. Okay. Um, but maybe I'm... Because I just remember him showing place. up in town. I think he's just, like, asking right? around in town. Yeah. And, and she kind of, like, offers the information because she's, like, entranced by this, like, older, like, handsome gentleman. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and then she, like, threads the whole family, basically, because yeah. she's, like attracted to this man yeah i mean i mean this is still an era where a young woman who looks like a minor like i think that yeah for that, sure that she's definitely a child in this movie like depicting on screen her looking for any kind of boyfriend at all is still kind of not like quite radical but you know pushing the envelope mm-hmm. and i think that to a certain extent i think the movie should get some credit for that like we we, we should 
we are, we are correct to critique it on the grounds that really they're saying like women are causing most of the problems, um, or at least the ultimate problem at the end there. But like there's still something to be said for just like showing it and saying like, yeah, sometimes young girls want, you know, the boyfriend want to socialize with their peers. <laughs> um, mm-hmm. And yeah, they don't exactly nail it, but it's also 1955 and, and like there's some merit to that. That's interesting because um, I, I never thought about that it feels weird to think about that trope being rare in film, right? When I think of the 50s, I think of essentially like the Back to the Future 55, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And, you know, they always have like the the sort of prom situation or not literally that what was in right. the movie, but like, you know, the, the girls pursuing guys and that kind of thing. So it doesn't feel novel to me, but yeah, I, I guess I haven't seen enough films from that time to know. Yeah, this- this would have been right in the thick of the Hays Code, right? Like, there would have been pretty severe restrictions on what can actually be, de- be depicted in a movie. Um, and, you know, pushing against that is, is a good thing, um, I think. And that does also give us, I think, one of the other great, great moments in this film where you have Lillian Gish on her rocking chair with her shotgun. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> in profile against Robert Meacham just, like, lurking outside the house and, and singing a song. Um, and then I think one of the more interesting moments when she joins in. Yeah. So you have this, cause he's been singing that same like hymn mm-hmm. essentially the, the whole movie and she starts doing it kind of in round with him. And it calls to mind like how close together are these characters really? How far apart are they really? Which right. she's also a bit of a religious fanatic. Exactly, but, right? Like how, uh, But she she knows a different set of lyrics, right? The, the beginning of it is a little bit different, which to me, I, and I don't know the song to, to say, so I don't know if that is supposed to be counteracting something or if that's just how the song is written. Sometimes you will have mm-hmm. two vocal parts. One of them sings one part, another, another, a different part, and they like complement one another. And in that reading, it seems to be suggesting that the good religious, the good devout religious person is complimenting the insidious, predatory religious person, and that is a radical idea in 1955. That's a radical idea now, to a certain extent, and I think it's textually there. Like that's not the point of the movie, and I think if you're trying to make that point, like you've got to be pretty subtle about it, or they're gonna they're gonna knock it down. But here we have like here's this guy that's that's exercising violence in the name of his religion, who is hearing voices and attributing them to God, singing in unison with this devout woman who takes in strays at her most violent moment, when she's holding a gun, when she's ready to shoot somebody. And bringing that together visually and sonically, like this movie does, I I think that that's significant. And I think that that Mm. is, I think that that is intentional. Additionally, you, you have her framed such that she is backlit against the light that uh, Robert Meacham is sitting under. So she's entirely in black. So you, you have this moment when they start singing together and she's entirely shadowed. And this movie that, that deals with light and shadow so strongly and associates that shadow so often with the the evil act, to, to light her that way at that moment, uh, it feels pretty significant to me. And, and I mm-hmm. think that that is a part of what's going on in this movie. Uh, which, which to me lends credence to the idea that this is pretty critical of religion, like, uh, that, uh, that they well, yeah, are collaborative. At the end, so the <coughs> there's this like older couple in town, and they're the ones that like really push the mom to like get remarried yes. to spoons, spoons, the spoons. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. they run like an ice cream parlor or yeah. something. Um, and she, the the wife of the couple, is also shown to be very religious mm-hmm. and pushes the mom like into marriage because uh, like on religious grounds yeah later in the film after at the very end um when mitchin's character is like convicted of murder she's the one that kind of like whips up this mob to like try and hang him and they have to like kind of scurry him mm-hmm. out of the court out of the back of the courthouse and they like chase after after them yeah um so even that is, is shown to like the Sort of like the irony or the like. The, irony the, feels like the right word. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Of, of like of, of this character being the the sort of like motherly character, but then like being the most bloodthirsty at the end, yeah. end of the film is like uh, I, that contrast is interesting. Right, and, and again, like it, it shows again how close these people are to one another. 
mm-hmm. right? Like they're, they're that far away from a violent act, right? Mm-hmm. Like he, you have this guy who's clearly the hunter, the predator, the villain. He's ready to kill. He's going to kill for money, right? Like just the most selfish, you know, type of materialistic act. But then he is also drawn in parallel with Lillian Gish, the devout Christian, Mrs. Spoon, devout Christian, you know, runs the picnics, things like that. So yeah, maybe this maybe this movie is pretty critical of religion. Maybe that's part of the reason it's not landing in 1955. That yeah, that reminded me a lot of the the mist because like one of the major Which I have not seen one of the major like thrusts of that film mm-hmm. is that this sort of like entrapped group of survivors. Part of the group like starts to form this like cult that's okay. that's whipped up by this older woman who's very reminiscent of this character. Okay. Mm-hmm. Going, yeah. going back to the scene where they're singing, yeah. Um, I really like the end of that scene where I think the was it Rosie who like distracts the the mother. I think so. It's but one of them. She yeah. distracts her for like a second <coughs> and then like leaves from the frame, and then um, the preacher's gone. Yeah, that's so good. That's like a classic like horror movie shot. Yeah, and I don't I don't know if this is like an early like one of the earliest uses of this type of shot, but it was excellently done it's so effective especially because it i think it's like the same framing because you have like this yeah shot from behind meacham looking towards the house and he's there cut to this sequence that you're describing then cut back to the exact same framing only he's not there anymore yeah. well i think they had someone obscure him from view okay. ask a question and then leave and then he's gone right without it yeah. changing shots okay and so you they do the kind of like disappearing behind a bus sort of thing mm-hmm. And like, oh shit, where'd he go, right? It's like Spider-Man 3. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, th- th- I'm glad you brought that up because Pauline Kael uh, famously reviewed this movie and called it one of the most terrifying movies she's ever seen in her life. Um, I'm not sure if I feel that strongly about how scary it is, but mm-hmm. it's certainly unsettling. Yeah. And I, those might be close enough, you know, for rock and roll. Um, so you're, you're not alone in thinking this. Like, it, it, yeah, this, this is very easily read as, read as a horror movie or as a monster movie yeah. specifically. Um, and it, it's, a, it's such a peculiar film that it does kind of defy those typical categorizations. Um, so, yeah, I think, I think that's really effective. And you, you see him at these monstrous moments so often, not just like when he's actually killing, but you have like the, their escape in the boat. When he like dives in the water and is oh, like yeah. clawing at them to to then like just missing them it's at his most primal, on. yeah. And and you see like how close he is to just like losing it. And there's a few moments in this movie where he really does just kind of break, and the you know nice guy veneer just falls away. Um, and that's like if, if the movie's terrifying, that's when it's terrifying, right? When like that yeah. slips it's off. It's always really unsettling to see that kind of like charismatic or nice looking person like really break their their mask, right? Mm-hmm. It's even scarier when when they're the ones who are vicious. Yeah, it, well, and that's when um, it, it, the, the first time, it, I think it's the first time it happens, you only hear it, right? Because mm-hmm. you're the, in the perspective of the Shelley Winters character, the mother, when, and when she's outside approaching the house and Robert Meacham is talking to the young daughter, yeah. and she refuses to tell him where the money's hidden, and he like calls her a brat or something, and there's like this, this bellowing noise, and it's like you don't see him do it, but you hear him do it, and that like makes it all the more effective, I think. Um, again, a horror movie technique—you hear it, you don't see it. Yeah, yeah. I, I feel like I knew the references to this film before the film itself. Yeah, um, particularly the love-hate mm-hmm. tattoo on the knuckles. And I was surprised that it came from this film. Agreed. Yeah. Because um, mm-hmm. I think that appears in, is it Clockwork Orange? Or Might be. It pops up in some other documents. But yeah, definitely. It happens in real life. People yeah, actually it, get those tattoos. Yeah, yeah. 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 That, that's definitely a thing. Um, yeah, I, I had no idea. Until you told me when you first mentioned this movie. Um, yeah, I had no idea that it, it stemmed from this. Um, and it's a, such a cool idea. I'm like, so... This really felt mm-hmm. right. And the story that he tells, uh, right, about the, like kind of it's a Cain and Abel reference, right? Yeah, yeah. That yeah. that's really creepy and well, like a great way to introduce the character and such a great uh, visual performance, right? Because he has this thing where he like clasps his hands together and like is he almost, pretends he's wrestling himself. Yeah, like arm wrestles himself essentially in the middle of this ice cream shop. <laughs> and 
like that I think that's that's another moment where you start to see it slip a little bit right yeah. like you get this look of someone that's like perhaps a little bit violent or a little bit too much yeah um, although there it's just deniable enough that exactly. he, he kind of looks like a, a preacher who's just really into his sermon right you, you sometimes see them get really into it like well, that. And mrs spoons is convinced by it yeah, yeah she's exactly. like yeah it's great yeah, yeah. right Correct. You should preach yeah. it that way every time, yeah. right? Yeah. yeah. And, and yeah, so you're exactly right, and that's the intended effect there. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, I, I agree. Like that. That is probably the the longest legacy that this movie has to offer is those uh, those tattoos. Um, so I, yeah, I don't know when that started getting adapted because again, this movie was was not a huge hit when it came out, um, but it certainly was eventually. Yeah. Although I do wonder how that story like plays into the preacher's character because I never really get the impression like he's wrestling against his hate i feel like he's just always giving into it without any hesitation yeah yeah no i i agree like because he, uh, he represents just the hate side of that but i think yeah. that in terms of our larger struggle as people or as or within christianity as religious americans whatever it might be that struggle is very present right uh, you know, and and i think that's what that's more getting at not about okay. him specifically because he's very clearly on one side of that spectrum yeah. but People at large are on a different side, and it, it feels like this movie is saying that maybe we're more towards the hate side than we like to think about ourselves, and maybe we are all wearing this, you know, loving front that uh, hides something that's more truly hateful that we see with Mrs. Spoon and, to a lesser extent, Lillian Gash. Um, so yeah, I think that's how I would situate it within the film at okay. large um, for me, anyway. Um, and I've mentioned her a few times, but it's great to see Lillian Gish in this movie. Like she is, she was one of the big um, silent film stars back mm-hmm. in like the early twenties. This is Mrs. Spoons. No, this is the Cooper? Mrs. Cooper, the, the nice lady at the end with the shotgun. Oh, okay. Yeah. Um, Lillian Gish, very very famous silent movie star, uh, framed as like this youthful ingenue. Like she had this very like, childlike look. Took about ten years off, and then came back later on. Um, taking speaking roles and okay. you know, continuing her career. Um, so it, it's cool to see her in, in movies in general. And she's great here, despite her you know fourth wall breaking. Uh, <laughs> weirdest choice. I don't understand why they did that. Uh, so yeah, that, that was cool too. Yeah, uh, I do wonder if somehow they kept the money at the end and that's what was implied by them all getting new gifts at the end. Oh, I didn't even think of that. Maybe. I figured the cops took it. I mean, that's what I was wondering, but <laughs> yeah. I, I wonder if them all getting these shiny new gifts implies something. I didn't make so. that connection at all, but that's that's a good read. That's and, possible. Yeah, I mean, that's the film never possible. answers, like, what happened to the money. Yeah, but yeah. it's not relevant, I guess. It's not yeah, it, yeah. my assumption was that the cops just, you know, took it in as evidence. Although yeah. the, the boy's, like, trying to give it back at the end, right? Because he sees it as, like, you know, his familial, like, sin. Yeah. Yeah. The, the sins of the yeah. father, you know. Yeah. Yeah, um, which I, which I think is what we're supposed to be re- reading there. Like that, the the desire to hold on to this money mm-hmm. is really what brought this evil upon them. Um, I, yeah, I do like that they hide the money from the audience for a while. A, a while, yeah. Yeah, they yeah. they never actually tell you where it is until the daughter is like playing with it, right? Yeah, cutting it up. was <laughs> like making little paper dolls. Yeah, out of it, which I thought was pretty good. Ten thousand bucks? Because I don't think this take. Is this is this supposed to take place in nineteen fifty? It feels no, like no, it's, no, early. it's, it's yeah. uh, during the depression. That's what I thought. Right. So ten thousand bucks during. I put it into a calculator depression. actually, yeah. and it equates to. I put it in nineteen thirty-five, and it's about like one hundred eighty thousand yeah. today dollars. Yeah. Which is something, but it doesn't feel like you know family murdering money. Well, apparently it is. Well, and this movie, like in the opening sequence, makes it pretty clear that this guy's. Murdering people for much, much less. That's true. Than Ten thousand dollars. It's also the height of the depression. So, <laughs> yeah, right. like any money is, yeah, yeah. it is pretty good. That's there. A fair um, point. Yeah, so I, I think that that it's this is just extra incentive for him to murder this particular family. But what it, what did it say? He was like losing count of the number of widows that he had gone through. And he, would, he got up to like, oh, maybe it's five, maybe it's 12. <laughs> it's some large How number. How did he not get caught after all that? It, all good questions. I, I, he only got caught for stealing a car. Yeah, yeah. So uh, he, he's I mean, much, it does seem like there's not exactly like crack policing going yeah. on during this time. And it also seems believable that you could just like wander from town to town murdering people. <laughs> like it's yeah. not like they like put an APV out like could find you <laughs> right and I think that's part of the critique here right is that because mm-hmm. this I mean yeah it's this anti-western but it's also like this southern gothic 
And here's this, the, the idea that it is kind of this lawless land, right? And it, it's not romanticized like in a Western. Like you, you hear a lawless land in a Western and it's adventure, right? Like it's possibility. Yeah. And here it's terror and vulnerability and being killed, yep. right? <laughs> uh, and which is probably much truer to life, right? Yeah. And no also that you probably like only knew like seven people right. for like your life. Right. So yeah, someone <laughs> new wanders into town and it, it, it's exciting and yeah. yeah and, and and they someone dies. A, they can get away with shit. Yeah, yeah. Um, so any um, any other thoughts on uh, Night of the Hunter? We have not. just very pleasantly surprised by this movie. Greatly yeah. enjoyed it. Uh, I do feel like the I did feel like the part after they got onto the boat and escaped like dragged a little bit. It it, it felt the the pacing slowed down a lot at yeah, that point. By so I thought it might have. I would have preferred if it's it wasn't. Yeah, like, I slowed down. I liked the. I like that it breathed a little bit, and I like just the strangeness of that sequence. Like, it's so bizarre the way they decided, like we talked about, the way they decided to frame nature in relation to these children during that sequence. It, it, when they yeah, hide like, in the barn, too, that's yeah. all terrifying. Yeah, oh, yeah. That, like, how do you find them there? Yeah, A, how did he find them there? And, like, you have that shot of, like, the open barn door, and you see him off in the distance riding by on his horse. Again, another very clear Western reference. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And like that is just, it's like, oh shit, <laughs> like he's right there, right? And you hear his song and everything. Yeah, that was a great sequence. That, that, that was really good. Um, so yeah, I like the chase part of this. I thought that was really effective. Rio Crossman, any last thoughts here? Um, it's a stunning movie. Like I, um, yeah, I, I bought this and I'm, I'm glad that I like have it. It's yeah. like, it's visually... You can reference the cinematography. Yeah, it's incredible. Yeah, just well, top to front. Yeah, it, it's it's such it's such a felt film, right? Like it's so confident in its tone. It's so confident in like the mood that it's striking, um, and I think that that is really what makes it work, right? Like we can unpack like what what is it saying about religion? What is it saying about poverty? Things on that, but really, like this is a movie about eliciting that feeling, right? Like that visceralness, and it, in on that level, it's just unimpeachable. Like it's just absolutely mm-hmm. nails it. At, throughout, yeah. right? It's a tight 90 minutes and it like it knows exactly what it needs to be for every single second of it. I like that it's a small story, too. Mm-hmm. Like, it's not about the end of the world. It's, you know, it's just about this like one creepy moment. And yep, there's a weird thing that happened. But it, it opens up in, in such a way that like there's there's a lot to it. And just, just this character, the performance by Robert Mitchum, I think is like, stunning yeah. like mm-hmm. it's it's incredible yeah. like how scary he is and like how he becomes this character yeah mm-hmm. and how, how quickly he characterizes this guy right mm-hmm. like you have this sense of who he is kind of immediately right and like the, just the the presence that he is right away and that's just makes him like occupying the frame so well and like yeah so dominant but he's not like a you know like a batman character where like you know <clears throat> The bad guy is the guy that like dresses in this like weird costume. Right. It's just like he's just a guy. Yeah. But he's way more scary than the Joker. Any sort of villain. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You might get. Yeah. yeah. Um, so yeah, I, I think this is an easy recommend for me. I'm glad we watched it. Yeah. Um, so good recommend. Trust me. Thank yeah, I, I think it's you know just it, it's odd how this movie just got lost yeah. to time. Yeah, but luckily and, rediscovered. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. All right, well, we'll be back in a moment with things we've seen. Uh, Stay tuned. And welcome back to Things We've Seen. This is a segment where we talk about other movies and media we've seen outside of the context of this podcast. Now, recently, we've all seen John Wick 3, so we figured um, we'd chat about that. Parabellum. Yeah, Parabellum. What, is, what, you what guys, does Parabellum mean? I don't even know. It means prepare for war, at least in the context of the movie. Oh, that's corny. But it's a good pun because <laughs> mm-hmm. um, there's that quote in the movie about if you want peace, prepare for war, mm-hmm. which is also used in Latin and it's Parabellum. But also there's uh, – Parabellum is a term that shows up in like weaponry. They have bullets that are like called – types of ammo that are called Parabellum. Oh, um, I didn't know that. So it's what, a good kind of – What's special about that? I don't know. They just call the the. I don't know. I'm not like a. I don't know that much about guns. I just know the term comes up when you're talking about specific calibers of ammo or weapons or something like mm-hmm. that. So it comes up. Um, and the, I mean, the name is probably because of a similar like reference to the Latin phrase. 
I, I would assume um, so. But I think it's a good um, like thematic pun. This is the best rated of the John Wick movies. Is it? Uh, yes. Uh, critically, according okay. to Rotten Tomatoes. So take that um, as you will. But I wonder why, though. I think it's a referendum on the series as a whole. I mean, because the, the first okay. one was a surprise hit. Like, nobody thought that that movie was going to take off the way that it did. It got under-reviewed, I think, because of that. Probably just underwatched by critics because of that. And by the third one, which I, I did like. Like, I think this is a good movie. Uh, I think people are saying, like, oh, yeah, these in general are good. Yes, it's in the, general, you should be it's watching It's like the Return these. of the King effect. Yeah, yeah, I think it is. Although yeah. there is a fourth one now, so <laughs> something else. But, um, yeah, I think that, that it, it is that kind of thing. Because, well, again, I, I like this movie. I thought it was better than the second one. It's not as good as the first one. The first one, I think, is really, like, one of the all-time great action movies. Yeah. Um, and I think most would agree uh, by now. Um, but I, I, I think that that's what's going on there. It's my, again, just a, a pet theory. I think... What's good about this one is that they're finding like new things to do. It, in, like in, in terms, terms of like the mythology of the, the not world. just the mythology, but just like you know, there's only like so many bad guys you can shoot, yeah. and they're they're figuring yeah. out like new ways to like craft the action sequences that are interesting and different. Yeah, like, and, I appreciate that. Yeah, that, yeah, that's something that I like that the the Fast and Furious franchise does. They they find new ways to wow you with their their action spectacles, right? Mm-hmm. So here they they did a lot of new stuff that the previous two movies hadn't done. And you know that's fun. It's surprising. Yeah, it's exciting. Uh, yeah, what stuck out in my mind was the like horse sequence. Um, <laughs> One of the weirder sequences in any of these movies. But it's great. Yeah. Like the, <laughs> I would the first twenty five minutes of this film they're very very good goes uh, mm-hmm. and he like slaps a horse and the horse kicks the bad guy in the face it, like in a very shocking manner <laughs> yeah um, and then they do it like a few more times and it's it's rad yeah yeah and then he rides out on a horse onto Brooklyn suddenly and yeah. Yeah, again, the geog- like two, the geography in this movie is kind of all over Little the place. Little dicey. Yeah, it doesn't yeah. matter, but it's funny as a New Yorker. Yeah, right, if you know the city, it's like, oh, this is other gibberish. Okay. I have an answer to the parabellum round, according to Cora. Okay. Um, so this is called a, this is, it's a parabellum round, also known as a Luger round. Um, but it measures 9 by 19 millimeters, and because it's bigger... Um, it's more of like a military round, okay. Um, versus like a nine by eighteen or a nine by seventeen, which is like a normal like handgun round. Wow. Okay. So mystery solved. You're you're bringing the bigger firepower, so it's the like piece for war. Yep. Okay. Uh, yeah. Okay. Like representative of the larger budget that this movie got, I'm sure. Yeah. Yeah. Because there's clearly more money on the screen here. Right, like they're having motorcycle sword fights. They're having this horse sequence. They're traveling to, I don't know, wherever they travel Morocco. to, Morocco, to Casablanca, yeah. right? Yeah. <laughs> uh, they they have like this mirror room that they're having another mirror room that they're having fights in. It, like, it wasn't a mirror room though. It was, it was the glass, it was a glass room. which mirror actually room was, they play too yeah. well. Yeah, I the, thought that worked too. Yeah. Uh, so like, there's there's a clearly a big, bigger budget here, right? Like there's just more of it on the screen. Yeah. Um, and. You know that's fine. Like part of the fun of the first one is that it, it they are operating in this smaller space. I think um, yeah. and using that to an, an effect. I think I'm in the same boat as you though. Like I, I enjoyed this one and the second one. They're fun. Yeah. Like they're I'm always gonna be down to watch a John Wick film. Of course. But I don't know if I'll ever be wowed the same way I was when I first saw the first John Wick, and I'm like, holy shit, this is happening. Yeah. Uh, when he did, he did his very first shootout in his house, you know, at the beginning of the movie. Like, that blew me away, like, instantly because it was just so smoothly done. Mm-hmm. And, like, the the style of shooting he does is so unique in that one. Yeah. Right? And, like, I don't I don't know if you can really capture that feeling twice. But I also liked um, the smaller scale of the first one where they hint at the Assassin Underworld but don't show you too much of it. So you can kind of fill it in for yourself. And I thought it became a little too much, a little too cheesy when they expanded on that world and really showed you what was going on with it in the second and third movies. I, I actually agree. Yeah, I, I think that we're, I don't know if we're there yet, but we're starting to see a little bit too much explicit explanation of how these things work, right? Yeah. And, and just like kind of assuming audience knowledge was cool in the first one, right? Yeah, that one it's cool. Yeah. You're, you're like, you know, you're filled in on it. You're like pulled into it. Here, mm-hmm. they're just like... Ex- expositioning it at you 
And I don't know. It just feels like it's trying too hard yeah. in these movies. Yeah. I, I don't, again, I, th- I like this movie. I think that stuff yeah. largely works. And I think it especially works in the context of this one specifically because I think there's a lot going on here about rules, right? Like, that's one of the big themes of this film, right? Like, how, sure. not just, like, what the rules are, but also about who follows them, what it means to follow them, what it means to break them, what it means to break them and then not break them, right? And, like, I, I like that it's playing around in that space, right? And so explaining the rules, you know, becomes necessary if that's what your film's going to be about. Mm-hmm. So yeah. I think that that's fine here, and I think that that can be effective, but it does lose some of the magic and some of, like, the the mystery um, of of John Wick yeah. one, uh, when you have to do that, right? When that has to be part of what's yeah, going on. Yeah, but another problem I had is so in John Wick one, you kind of get a taste <coughs> of this assassin underworld, and you just right. imagine these guys that get hired by like you know the mafia to kill off people so and so, yeah, that they want dealt with. But then in the second and third one, you realize that there's this kind of global like you know order of assassins, right? And they start popping out of the woodwork. Th- that is implied in the first one. Yeah, What's yeah, it, it, it's it's not explicit, but okay. it, it's implied. Just the existence of the continental and okay. that there are rules there, and they, you know, there's like secret rooms in the continental that you can only get to if you have the assassin coins. Yeah, like a lot of that's there. They're just blowing it out in two and three, and three in particular, like really leans on the lore. Yeah, it feels like ways. everybody's a, a super secret international assassin yeah but that's movie. the thing right so once you yeah. expanded it this far it's like you know is this involved? powerful <laughs> yeah. don't they just control the world at this point it's like what <laughs> is the russian mafia gonna do when this like high power group of assassins can do whatever they want in the world essentially right like yeah there's no like non-assassins in this movie yeah. Whereas the first one, that was very different it was just like yeah it's so, sort of spoiled russian brat Played by Theon, the Theon Greyjoy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's not, yeah. Um, I, 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 truthfully, I was not really bothered by all the all the lore stuff. I think it's done in a way that's like stylistically consistent, um, and it does remove. Like I'm always against the over explanation of things, but I I think there's still enough like. Here that's not like being too explicit that it, it's fine with it. No, I, I yeah. agree. Like I, I, I don't want to. I don't mean this it, to sound negative or as a knock it, on the film. It was it, yeah. to me. It was reminiscent of, of the Warriors where they cut to like the DJ okay. and, the, and the DJ in the Warriors kind of like from this radio station is narrating the movement of the Warriors around the room. And the, the same thing kind of happens here where there's this like uh, adjudicator, the, the adjudicator and the the tattooed like HQ oh, of yeah. like uh, kind of roller derby uh, looking people that mm-hmm. uh, right keep track of who, who can kill who and yeah in like a Wes Anderson like <laughs> in low, a punk West Anderson yeah way. like low tech way mm-hmm. yeah. um, I, I was okay with that it's just kind of like a stylistic flourish it's like corny but they do it sincerely so that it, it doesn't to me detract from the film too much. Yeah, mm-hmm. I, I think my favorite addition in in this one was the the main villain, the um, that he fights at the end, the big boss. Who, what's the what's the actor's name? Mark. Oh um, yeah, Dukasco. I can't I remember can't his can't name. The sushi either. chef. Yes, the that guy was great. Like he was, he kind of stole the show for me. The Iron Chef host. <laughs> right. Um, I, I thought he was really good. I want him to get more work and more things. It looks like he has been working for a very long time, but yeah, it was funny to see him switch between <laughs> like the really serious. Um, like you know, Japanese samurai type of personality to yep. like the like fawning fanboy character mm-hmm. and like go back and forth. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so yeah, I, th- I think that that he really stole the show for me, and I, I liked his liked his character here. Also, fun to see Boban at the at the beginning playing you know a really huge guy because. That's <laughs> taking a break from basketball yeah, to, yeah. to do that. Yeah, that's um, a real basketball player. Um, yeah. And there there's some big actors in this film. Um, Holly Berry is yep. in the Morocco section. Um, Another yeah. Game of Thrones alum, uh, uh, Bran of the Blackwater, shows up as a... The, the castle. The, yeah, the castle, the Casablanca guy. Yeah, um, and Ian, Ian McShane, who's also in Right, uh, he's been Thrones. in all of them. Um, yeah. But he is a much larger... Well, he has a big role in this film. And then uh, Angelica Houston. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah, and kind of a supporting role. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and I, I love her and everything that she's uh-huh. in. Um, and she's so good. I like that whole sequence, too, where they, they go to the <laughs> R- Russian ballet house. And there's 
really good um, kind of references to like the the body and like the sacrifice of the body for like physical feats, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, both for women and for men, because they they start mostly just showing uh, female ballet dancers, but then they they move throughout the building and there's this like wrestling room and. Um, it, yeah. That was good. I, I like that whole sequence. And I think that's a, a sequence where they're introducing lore really well, right? Because you don't yeah. have Ndoka Yusin coming along and saying, like, and this is where we wrestle, and these guys wrestle for this reason. And once they're done wrestling, they're going to go on and do this. Yeah. Right. right. So it's like they walk through a room and a bunch of guys are wrestling. Yeah, <laughs> like I appreciate that, that because it's, yeah. it's more reminiscent to the first one where yeah. it's a bit more subtle. They give you the taste of the world and, and of John Wick's history, right? Right. They don't just, like... You know, tell it all to your face. And, and she's also, also uh, Houston seems to represent the like. It's not. It's unclear if she's the mafia, but she's she's like an outside force. She's not a part of this like assassin thing. She's right. Like, like parallel to it, but not in it. Yeah, suggesting yeah. a larger world. And I think um, you, you you again get at this idea that similar to the the theming of about uh, rules and like what happens when you break rules and things like that. This movie is also about consequences, mm-hmm. right? Because like what happens when you break rules? There's a consequence. And there's a payment to be made, right? Because that scene culminates in uh, John Wick cashing in some favor with like this token that he has, mm-hmm. and suffering some physical torment because of that, and then getting a getting transportation out of New York to to Casablanca. Um, one of many film references in this movie, um, and I I like that about this movie. Like, there's this this push pull between like this is. Yes, you can have this thing, but there are consequences because of it. And that's so present in well-made action scenes, right? So you have this operating at the thematic level and the, the plot level of the movie, but also within the action scenes you have, you take this action and here's the consequence of that action, yeah. right? It's all about setup, payoff, setup, payoff. And like seeing that mirrored within the action of the movie and the plot of the movie, it, it was effective for me. Like that, that, that worked well. Um, so yeah, good work. Good movie. I was not a fan of the Morocco sequence at all. In, um, yeah. in what sense? Um, it it was too of what too much of what I think you're referencing, where it's explaining the world too much. Okay. Uh-huh. Um, and also, it came across as really racist. Yes. He's it's like him and Holly Berry just like shooting all these guys in turbans. Yep. Um, yeah. Also, Morocco is a very modern city. Like it's <laughs> yep. it's not like. It's with. not Agrabah from Aladdin. It's yeah. <laughs> it's like a totally normal modern city um, that is, uh, you know, a historically important city because it's uh, connection to Europe and Northern Africa. Were very advanced civilizations that lived there for long periods of time. And, well, and and you have yeah. the Bron actor affecting this weirdo like accent. That like appears to be from nowhere, mm-hmm. just like broadly. He just doesn't know how to do an accent. Yeah, just like broadly northern African, I guess. Right, and like that was just like, man, is that really necessary? Like the guy presents as someone who's clearly not from there anyway. Like just have him keep his accent. Right, just talk. <laughs> I I would have been fine with that whole action sequence if not for just, it's just they're just killing guys in turbans. Right, uh, right. that look like Al Qaeda members. Yeah, yeah. Um, I, I agree. which is not even in Morocco or anywhere yeah. in Morocco. Yeah. Um, that sequence is amazing. Mm-hmm. There are a lot of coordinated tricks with uh, the the uh, the dogs. The dogs. Yeah. Incredible. Yeah, and they're real dogs too. For sure, and for sure that dog like jumped like seventeen feet up a wall <laughs> to like get a guy. Yeah, like that's incredible. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. And I can't imagine how long it takes to practice something like that. Like they, I, I read actually a brief interview about that. And they had to train the dogs for. Three to six months, I think, to get them to that point. Mm-hmm. That and they also fast. had the, uh, I don't know, uh, and they had that. They had to have Halle Berry and Keanu Reeves and the camera crew all with the dogs the entire time, Jesus. so that they would learn not to be aggressive to against those people. Okay. Yeah. Shit. And, oh, you, and then you have to like pad all of the. Yeah, they're the all padded guys. with green screen. Yeah. Green screen like crotch guards. <laughs> essentially. <laughs> yeah, a lot of dick bites from us. Yeah, yeah. Also, the what's. Funny is, um, and so I, I forget where this comes from, but I remember seeing or, or hearing about police dogs where, like, they, with the takedown commands, okay, they'll like give them the command, and the dog is just like a hundred percent on, mm-hmm. like, finds its target, takes it down. And I remember someone asking, like, one of these handlers, like, okay, well, what's the like the stop, stop doing command? That. And he's like, oh, he's like, there's no command. You're just like. <laughs> 
You just, stop. He's like, I just kick the dog in the ribs and like okay. knocks it off the okay off the guy. Well, and you can see that kind of in the sequence because like when the dogs take someone down, as the camera's moving, uh, and they're exiting the scene, the dogs are still like just like going like, at it, just yeah. like on the <laughs> yeah. stunt actor, like not letting go. Yeah, it feels and, like you could probably train a stab command in there. I don't know. Maybe. I don't know that much about dogs. But yeah, but, yeah, that feels dicey to me. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but th- that sequence is incredible. Yeah, um, but really problematic. Yeah, that's that. Yeah, um, I hope we haven't gone too long. But I had another no, fine. Got, observation um, that another reason why I prefer John Wick one style to this one style. But something I noticed about the difference in the way the action is structured. So in the first one, it always felt like there was a more clear like progression of each action scene where John Wick, like, well, there's bad guys coming from a certain direction because that's like why they're there, right? Or like they're entering his house from a certain spot and John Wick needs to like defeat them. Or like he's at the club and he's chasing after his target. And so he's pursuing the target and the henchmen are blocking him from that. But there's kind of a linear progression of this, right? So he's trying to get from point A to point B. Um, and so it's very geographically clear. There's clear goals, all that kind of stuff, right? Mm-hmm. To make an action scene, it, it helps make an action scene great. But it felt like in this one, if it had the problem of them just kind of shooting in random directions and people just popping out of everywhere, um, it was probably the worst in the Morocco scene because they're just in the middle of this castle and there's just bad guys coming from everywhere and you just see them just turn and shoot in random directions. Yeah, the end of the, like, movie kind of suffered from that too it was like unclear yeah. like what point we were trying to get where they're to. like in the continental and stuff yeah yeah it so, was like a cool sequence but it was unclear right. like what the objective was of, right so other like, than to survive you know exactly so you you do get all the cool shooting choreography that they usually do in these movies it just it feels messy it just feels like they're shooting randomly in the middle of a green screen, right? And that doesn't feel as satisfying. Yeah, they're not setting up the geography as well. Yeah. I think that's what we're identifying here. I, yeah. I, I think it's being yeah. edited too much, too. Yeah. Um, I really was, like, just thinking back to, like, Old Boy, where you have that, like, long, yeah. Yeah. like, one or fight scene. And, yeah. like, you could you could do that in these films, and you're, you're choreographing them enough such that you could do something cool. like that. Like, yeah. why... Like, that's visually easier to track and uh, shows how impressive what they're doing is much better. Mm-hmm. Well, and I think it stands We're, out in this movie because what follows that, that continental sequence, which I, I think is also kind of dicey in terms of just laying out where people are when, is those last two fights where he fights the, like, the pair of guys... The and then, yeah, from the raid, yeah, right, from the raid, and then <laughs> the um, the big villain at the end are actually really well laid out in terms of yeah. uh, what happens when you hit this guy. Where does he fall? Like, what does that mean? What does he do in response yeah. to that? Like, the, the cause and effect there, I think, works re- really effectively. I like how they use the glass in that yeah. scene too. Mm-hmm. To like when the sword like it scrapes the glass, mm-hmm. it's like if it touches you, this is what's you know. Yeah, yeah. Like, <laughs> this is the downside. It's like it shows the threat of the sword much better. Right, yeah. and it, those sequences are so clear, despite being in like this crazy glass thing that's going to obscure things. I think it it calls attention to the lack of clarity in some earlier sequences in the film. Yeah, that was something else I was disappointed by is you see the motorcycle scene being set up in the trailers and I thought this is going to be sweet, right? Mm -hmm. Um, But then they do it and you can tell they were trying to go for something because much of that scene is a one-shot sequence, right? So you could, like, they could do something cool like the old boy scene. Mm -hmm. But instead, even though it's like a slick one-shot sequence, it becomes kind of this blur of kind of cheap looking CGI and I couldn't really tell what was going on. Yeah, that was a reference to a movie called The Villainous, um, which is pretty good. Um, and I think that, that that's why they did that, was that they wanted yeah. to reference The Villainous. But, but, <laughs> yeah, I saw that scene because they mentioned it from the trailer and someone linked it. And that yeah. scene was awesome. That was yeah. very well shot, very clear. But here it became so blurry. Yeah. Yeah, like the amount of editing they're doing, that they're doing feels like cheating. Like, like yeah. what you're trying to show is the like physical prowess of of you know what's what they're catching yeah which is very impressive but there's so many edits that it it feels like you're just like not it's not the same i agree yeah it's it's not like a bruce lee film where you you see him just like just go to town or it's not like earlier films from these filmmakers right it's not like john mcguan it's Mm -hmm. not like atomic blonde 
right? Like, like that that stairway apartment sequence in Atomic Blonde, fucking stunning, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. yeah, better than anything in any of these movies, frankly. Like, mm-hmm. that just, just floors me every time. Yeah, um, and I think we've seen them do it well. It's it's kind of a bummer to see them lean on these these edits as much as they have. Yeah, I just want the like stable camera and just yep. show like one thing. Yep. Yep. And yep. and that's more interesting than like they did all the these like, tricks that they're doing. They, yep. They did a much older movie. They did it in Atomic One, they did it in Atomic Blonde, they did it in you know Mad Max, whatever. Like yeah, it's it's the right way to do it. Show people what you want to show them. Um, in any event, though, I, I still really like this movie. I think it's good. Yeah, it's I'm great. Glad, I'm glad I saw it. Where it feels like we got kind of down on it just now, but that's not still a good time. Yeah, not I how emphasize I want, that. Not how I want to frame my reaction to this movie. Um, I'm I'm down for the like Lawrence Fishburne, John Wick. Yeah, uh, let's team up Neo and Morpheus again. Yeah, <laughs> let's, let's go. Yeah, let's do it. Yeah, um, and I like that character too. Yeah, the the uh, the uh, Lawrence Fishburne one. Yeah, the like underworld, the king homeless of the character. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I agree. Yeah, yeah. just uh, Lawrence Fishburne like bless being blustery is is fun. Mm-hmm. Um, anyway, I think it's your pickup next, Charles. So what are we gonna watch next week? Uh, I would like to pick Twelve Monkeys. Sweet, uh, Bruce Willis, yeah. Brad Pitt, Terry Gilliam. All right. Sounds good. Um, so that's the movie, uh, 12 Monkeys. Thank you for listening to this episode. If you like the show, please share it with people. Please comment. Please subscribe. Please like. It makes a difference. And join us next week for 12 Monkeys.